0: Welcome to Sundial, I'm Carlos Frias. It takes a certain kind of courage to tap into one's own history to write like Anna Vesiana Suarez. It requires looking at your life honestly and not looking away. Anna's a novelist and a syndicated columnist. She worked at the Miami Herald and the Palm Beach Post. She writes about family life and where can we find more conflicting emotion than in family. Anna has written about raising four sons and she's written about bearing a daughter. She wrote about the challenges of caring for an aging parent, even when that parent was a public figure. Her dad was the founder of the anti-Castro group Alpha 66 and a CIA operative. She writes about becoming a grandparent and realizing what kind of parent you've been by watching your own children raise their children. Now Anna's writing from someone else's history, Miguel de Cervantes. Her latest book, Dulcinea, Tells the story of the woman who inspired Don Quixote. It takes a certain kind of courage to write about one of the masters. To talk to us about it all is Ana Vassiana Suarez. Welcome, my friend.
1: Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, ever since you know I got your book a couple months ago, and I and I said you know I'm I'm I don't want to have her on until we've had a chance to read it and really get into it about it, and because it it reveals such a different writing life, writing part of your writing life. Than your work as a columnist. Um, and I thought that, that that is so interesting.
1: Oh, yes, yes. And uh, some of my readers, column readers, don't even know that I've written other novels.
0: Right. You're, this is your fourth book, right?
1: My fourth book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah well, they're going to find out now. Now they know. Um, you know, I, I, I'm curious why this idea of writing historical fiction, like, what did it, what did it open up for you? this idea of writing from this mo- this time in the past that is that is almost untraceable when you think about you know 16th century you know
1: Well it was truly a learning experience because I knew very little about the golden Age of Spain right um, at least the history. I knew Barcelona my my mother was born in in a town not far from Barcelona mm-hmm. my Paternal grandparents uh, are from Catalonia, so I've traveled there often. But of course, Barcelona of the 21st century is very different.
0: Yeah, I remember. I know that uh, you know. Obviously, the book Don Quixote, like that, inspired you writing, and I've I've tried to read that original, the original Spanish, and it is not Spanish, folks. It no, is not. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's it, 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 it's
1: just very different. And I had been thinking about this book off mm-hmm. and on for literally I this dates me but half a century Wow
0: amazing when when was that when, and, when did...
1: well, I read Don Quixote in the original Spanish as a tenth grader
0: that's I think when I was exposed to it yes is it, about the 10th in a or the Spanish 11th
1: grade. four class mm-hmm. and I always say read is really more like you struggle through this archaic Spanish right
0: it's like runes at that point yeah.
1: And at that time i I was really enamored of this character who was truly always off stage. She plays such an instrumental role of muse yet always off stage right So of course, like any sixteen year old thought, I'm gonna write about her one day. I'm gonna write about her one day. And time passed. I wrote other things there were detours in my life and detours in my career. And then finally, when I had the time to do the research, because I spent a good year, maybe 18 months just reading. And of course, I did other, I worked in other things, but it was just reading. I I wrote like, uh, or I read like half a dozen Cervantes biographies. I read all kinds of um, books about daily life and you know in the golden age Spain right. about customs about Barcelona I read diaries in Catalan
0: yeah and surprise like there's a lot of Catalan in the book right. which is you know even if you grew up speaking Spanish it doesn't necessarily help you there at all no yeah. no
1: it, it's it's a different language yeah. and I had heard it of course my grandparents spoke it um, but oh, your grandparents spoke catalan spoke catalan at home but you know once they died especially after my grandfather died mm-hmm. and my mother who who had grown up until she left for cuba speaking it never spoke it so like everything else i heard it when cousins visited when i visited family Um, but it's not the same, you know, so,
0: and you had a journey with this book because we have a friend in common, Jake Klein. We've dropped his name on the show so often he should send us a check. Uh, although I think he does support public radio. So that's a good thing. Jake Klein was in, um, you were part of a writer's group.
1: Yes, I still am. In fact, we met on, on Sunday and I had not been able to go for several months. Uh, Jake didn't make it. He was sick. Um, but we really, really missed them. So yes, it was um it's a writing group led by the incomparable Diana Bujabar.
0: Who wrote a wonderful book called was it Fencing with the King?
1: Fencing with the King. Which is beautiful.
0: A great, great, beautiful But book I had really. read mm-hmm.
1: all her other books and but I didn't know her personally. And I uh I asked Connie Ogle because I was used to. The former
0: books editor who's now. Former at the former books editor. Now she's the food editor at the Miami Herald. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, I was used to, as a journalist, essentially getting pretty much immediate feedback. Right. And of course, much, much shorter. Right. Um, so she told me about this writers' group. Right. And I joined sometime in early 2019 um, and it was a lifesaver in ways that you don't always expect. Right. So of course you have uh, suggestion, criticism, you know, you bring your early drafts, but just the fact that you're meeting with other writers mm-hmm. and it becomes your tribe, and it's very hard because if you're not a writer, if you're not in the creative arts, um, you don't understand how lonely the journey is. Right. I mean, you're working on a book for years.
0: Yeah, years. You could be a decade. Look at look at Cormac McCarthy's book. Right. I mean. I
1: mean, there's. Um, I mean, I I recently read an essay by another Miami fabulous Miami writer, Ana Menendez. Mm-hmm and she talked about working on this her new book that's going to be out later this month the apartment for like 10 years. Yeah. And people would say 10 years. But people don't realize how you go over and over a draft. Yeah. Well, belonging to a writers group kind of is able to hold your hand. People right. are holding your hand.
0: Tell me about the moment where you like you kind of let go of your own insecurities and you start writing for the moment where you say, you know, all right, stop listening to that voice in your head. I have to start creating this character of Dulcinea. Mm-hmm. Like this character who, um, I think of like uh, Madeline Miller who wrote Circe, um, sure, sure. so was a character that there was not a lot of background. She got to have fun with the history that surrounded and then create from this character who didn't have a lot written about her. And you kind of did the same thing with this character who's been around for 400 years. And no one, like you took on the task of creating this character. Um, Tell me about that, when you first start hearing her voice in your writing and creating.
1: Well, I had, you know, I pretty much decided towards 2017, I had taken a buyout from the Herald, and I said, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. I'm not getting any younger. Uh, My runway (laughs) is getting shorter, (laughs) so, and I had more freedom with my time. But I and I tell when I go speak to young writers that you, that critical voice is always there. Mm-hmm. That negativity is always there. You're not going to be as good. Why would anybody read this? What do you have to say? So, in a way, you have to kind of be, and I've said this, delusional. <laughs> uh, but I trick myself. So, I trick myself in saying, I'm not going to commit to years. I'll just do three chapters. So, or I'll commit to doing the outline. So, I outline very mm-hmm. roughly. Right. So, that's not a big time commitment.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, you start little by little. And it's tricking yeah.
1: yourself to do it. And then you really start getting into it. You begin to inhabit that world. Well, you
0: got to meet her, right? You created her. Who is Dulcinea, finally? Uh, Ultimately, who is she?
1: So Dulcinea is uh, the nickname for a woman named Dulce Lul Prat. She's a wealthy Barcelona woman, Mm -hmm. daughter of a merchant. And she falls in love with an impoverished poet soldier named Miguel Cervantes.
0: That's not a story that we can imagine, (laughs) right? Somebody falling in love with a starving artist?
1: A starving artist... And um, it's the story not only of their relationship, Mm -hmm. but it's also the story of her traveling across Spain from Barcelona to Madrid after she receives a deathbed letter from him asking that he wants to see her one last time
0: so against this backdrop of her taking this hero's quest right like right, very like
1: cervantes' don quixote
0: taking this act this hero's quest to to see her 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 lover one last time before he dies and that's kind of like the backdrop of the book and we get to see her develop and and you know you forget that like we're talking about a time where you know you wouldn't just get in your car and drive across the county no. like you were there were you know uh, all kinds of perils along the way and people waiting to ambush you and you got to really you you put on your your Dungeons and Dragons hat and like you exactly. set out the hero quest. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, and and she, you know she does this. So the um, the story is told in a dual timeline mm. by her. So one timeline is essentially the spring of sixteen sixteen as she travels, and the other one is her relationship from when she first meets him. As um, somebody who would likely be looking to marry at that, you know, not now, we wouldn't consider that appropriate, but um, right at right. that time.
0: how did how did this make you an expert on this time? Like?
1: You know, I keep telling my husband that I want Jeopardy to have just all their their designated, Answers on sixteen hundred Europe and Spain <laughs> because I would you know from the research You'd clear I clear the just, board. I mean, you know things from like strange things. For example, you didn't wear underwear. Underwear was not something used.
0: Yeah, you know what? I did, that, there must have been a part of you where you're like, I'm glad I was born in the time I was
1: born. Yes, and then just you know a whole bunch of other things. Something surprised me. Like um, in Catalonia, for instance, there was the custom of what they call la puilla, which women could run or inherit if a male heir was not available. And, you know, people died from anything. And, of course, men fought in wars. So, um, but with the intent that they would carry on the business or whatever it was until they married and produced a male heir or, you know, the husband took over. But still, that, to me, was eye-opening.
0: Right. Our guest today is Ana Vesiana Suarez. She's an author and syndicated columnist. Her writing covers everything from raising kids and becoming a grandparent to writing through the grief of losing a child. Her latest book is Dulcinea, which tells the story of the woman who inspired Don Quixote. Like I said, I can see the parallels, Ana, in your book, which is so much about family dynamics. It's all family dynamics. And, you know, 400 years ago, and really you see how a lot of things don't change. It's still a story of a, of a, of a young woman uh, negotiating the politics of, a family life politics with her father, with her mother, con la abuela, right? Mm-hmm. The grandmother. And I'm curious how much of your, how much of your self did you find putting into this character that you were creating?
1: Well, I, when I was planning this book, and I'm what they call a plotter, I need to really know where I'm going to end up. And I I plot mm-hmm. from the beginning to the end. I don't always follow, but I need that. That's my security blanket. I did know two things. Um, I wanted her to have her own artistic passion, mm-hmm. because that would be in i know that would create conflict with the family
0: Right. because she's a she's an artist in the and
1: book. she's an artist she's a painter and um it's something her mother never accepts her mother's whole goal is to marry her daughter mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is um not convenient but is uh is a good placement, a good marriage placement. It's a good match. For it's the, a good, is marriage, a good right. match mm-hmm. for the family. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Miguel Cervantes would not be, although they were distant cousins. Right. Um, so I knew that, and I knew she, I wanted a, her to be from Barcelona because of my connection sure. to that area of Spain. And I knew that I kind of wanted to nod to... Uh, the structure of Don Quixote which is the travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I begin every chapter with a short italic introduction as Cervantes did so that I knew. But I felt because I remember very clearly realizing as I I matured and grew older that I wanted to be a writer.
0: I'm curious about where that comes from, because I I see so many of those things, and even in the columns that you've written, I was thinking particularly one about you wrote when your father passed, about how your parents sometimes don't understand the parents coming to understand a person who wants to be live a life of creativity, mm-hmm. right? Versus you know something of something of numbers, something more you know that you can clock in and clock out, and it's a secure paycheck versus someone who creates, and I feel like there's a little bit of that. When I read oh this most I hear, definitely we talk about it
1: and I think I you know could bring this um, this kind of frustration y- you have of course you know I had the freedom to do it but it wasn't without um, certain not obstacles but just a lot of skepticism, a lot so, of skepticism. you know yeah. uh, I come from a family my uncles are doctors. my father was a CPA. Uh, my children went into math-related—I mean, strong math-related professions. Um, you know, I have a sister who was a lawyer. My late sister was a pharmacist. So, long story short, there's nobody was really creative, and I wasn't even good in English. So it was, <laughs> and I began to write in Spanish. Well, so you I come I from an immigrant sp-
0: background. You didn't come to the states until you were six. So right, right.
1: and then we lived in La Paz, Bolivia. And I went to a bilingual school, which is where I read Don Quixote. So I was, when I first started writing, I was writing in Spanish. So I come back as a junior in high school and have to make that jump into English.
0: So you were in Bolivia how many years? Four years. The longest
1: I've been at any school was four years.
0: You left Cuba at how old?
1: I was I turned six here. Well, like we got here, we left Cuba and we lived a year in Spain. We went with my mother. Mm -hmm. My father stayed in Cuba. He was in the underground. So my mother, because she was a Spanish citizen, had been born there, and you know her aunts and uncles and her first cousins all lived there, and we lived there until my father got out.
0: Right, and then you guys moved to from the from there. No, I lived here
1: for like four or five years, went to different schools as we moved Mm -hmm. and then moved to La Paz, Bolivia. And I, so that was my introduction to Don Quixote and to really a different literary canon. Right. So I I read, you know, Lope de Vega, Becker, all these things that nobody, unless you major in Spanish literature. Tirso de Molina. Uh Calderon de Barca, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what I grew up with.
0: So you are you clearly have an affinity for, for the creativity, and you're, and you're devouring these different writers. How was it received then when you brought up to your family, to your father, uh, that you wanted to pursue a career in, in writing? When did that happen, and how, did, how was you that know, You
1: know, I, I told them pretty much towards the end of my junior year, and their reaction was... You're gonna
0: you're gonna be a starving artist.
1: You're gonna be a starving artist, yeah. and like all immigrant refugee slash exiled families, mm-hmm. you know you're gonna study a profession, something that's gonna be a paycheck, and you know they didn't know anybody. I didn't know any writers, so but I knew journalists. You know we got a lot of newspapers in our house so I thought I'll be a journalist I'll get to write
0: who, who are the people that did encourage you because along the way there's always someone that that you that your talent convinces them and says
1: I had um I had a I went to Immaculata LaSalle for my last two years in high school and I had an English teacher in my junior year who uh sister Julia who said have you thought of joining either the yearbook or the newspaper hmm. and that was you know just having somebody ask you to to do that and it was a small school I got to do a lot of things we had some we had a small class that worked on the school newspaper and most people went on to lead really incredible... Um, careers right uh the one still working elliot rodriguez who's still an anchor right News anchor, um, TV we had Eliana bravo okay who was also a, a tv journalist i was the only one who stayed in print journalism
0: i'm curious about it about your specific role because i know most of your writing as it's very personal and it's always family related and in a lot of ways, you try to keep most of it positive. Like you really are looking for silver linings in a way that makes you feel good. But they're also like when you write about family, there's also there's so many barbs attached to it, and you don't shy away from that. You you really what what I guess what gave you the interest and the courage really to begin writing about those things?
1: Well, you know, I started as all reporters covering news. Mm-hmm. So for. You know, the first 15, 20 years of my career, I was a, a news r- reporter.
0: Give me some of the things you covered. Uh, cover oh, education, I covered,
1: uh... for example, uh, I remember when the movie Scarface, mm-hmm. I had heard that there was talk about making this movie in the early 80s. Right. Um, I covered the Marielle Boatlift. From this side, we had another reporter who, at that time, you know, went went to Cuba. Uh, went uh, to Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, so it, it you know was a really a variety of things. But I think I was naturally more inclined to the longer form mm-hmm. and more to profile. So I did um, move over to features, and I at that point proposed many years ago to the Herald that there should be a column. They were not at first very open to it and I, because all columnists were very local or very political. Mm. And I thought that there was a space to write about what people talk to, Over the backyard fence. Right. Really. Or to your friends. You catch coffee or you go out to dinner. And I thought there was space there.
0: And what was that like then? I mean, because obviously your family plays a role in it. What was that like when you, like for your your husband at the time, um, and I say at the time because he he died relatively young at 37. He was another writer for the hair, or he was an an editor at the hair. An editor, right. What was it like for them? When you start, you know, you talk about you know family laundry and also the things that you're talking about the house and you know things that are going on in your lives, you know, and it becomes very personal. what was what was your experience like? the feedback from your family, but also from
1: readers? Yeah, I was very fortunate that when I started this, my children were still very young, mm-hmm. so they didn't uh, read. My late husband, Leo Suarez, uh, he, of course, as a journalist, uh, we had met on the at the college newspaper, so he kind of understood it. But I I knew for the writing to be effective that there were two things: I had to be honest about the issues, and I had to be vulnerable. I could not hold myself as having all the answers, or um, being separate because I didn't face these. Yeah. And.
0: You had to ask yourself, I don't know a lot. How I
1: don't do, know a how lot. Do how that?
0: do I feel about this? How do
1: I feel about this? And, you know, sometimes it's been very hard. I don't always write about everything as my children grew. You know, it was a little more difficult mm-hmm. um, to do because, of course, then, you know, they, could pick up the paper, they could read it. uh, The parents of their friends were readers and so that that was it. But I always thought that it was a a topic that even when it was hard to write about that you found, um, I don't wanna say a lesson but that you found like a little nugget of truth that you could bring Home and that it offered some consolation, so I've had to write about some really very very hard moments in my life. Yeah. Um, my husband Leo Suarez died of a heart attack. He was thirty-seven. The last thing, you know, I had five children. Uh, wow. So, wow. Um, it you know, and the the oldest had just turned fifteen, who was my daughter.
0: But the youngest and, was.
1: And the youngest was eighteen months.
0: Yeah! Wow! Wow!
1: So yeah, the uh, the youngest two were young enough where, you know, they really have no real memory of their but, father.
0: But you had you were now raising five so kids now, from almost separate generations, even like yeah. and and it's now all in your.
1: And I had this, and then you know, writing about that, I uh, then writing about meeting my second husband, who I truly thought I would never remarry. And I thought, you know, I'll just live my life. You know, I have a very busy life with these um, kids. So I had that. And then, you know, I had some hard things going through. For example, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she was very young. She was younger than I am now. Wow. And you realize, wow, you know, because you know when you receive that diagnosis what it means. Yeah. Um, I wrote through, for example, my sister and her husband were uh, killed in a car accident. And so I had to deal with that, you know, and I wrote about that and, you know, and just raising children alone, raising, and you know, my second husband got very, very sick and almost died. So I was having to deal with that again. And then the most recently in the summer of 2020, my father died and, you know, he was old. He was
0: older. He was and 91. He
1: he was very ready yeah. uh, for that. But then seven weeks later, m- my daughter, who we had had a lot of issues with. You um, you wrote you wrote that she and I wrote, had
0: been an alcoholic. And, yes. And you uh, wrote
1: about very honestly about Yeah. This, and how minutes? hard because um, I think a lot of th- the issues or the obstacles we face in life is Sometimes our own lack of acceptance. And we think by our sheer willpower, we can change things. Um, And you can't, you know, especially with your adult children. They are who they are.
0: Our guest today is Ana Veciana Suarez. She's an author and syndicated columnist. Her writing covers everything from raising kids and becoming a grandparent to writing through the grief of losing a child. And you have, you know, you've been so... Vulnerable about writing about these things that affected your life. And I remember there was a column that you wrote, and I think it's the first time that I've really came across you talking about this topic, which was talking about the passing of your father when your father is also a public figure, a well known, sometimes people would say notorious, but like a really a public figure, the founder of Alpha 66. A self CIA operative who I guess uh, also testified before Congress, Mm -hmm. and but then there's this other aspect where you write about like there was this private father that that I'm gonna keep a little bit to myself um, that I want to mourn a little bit about myself. Um, Tell me, will you tell me a little bit about about the dad that you knew and beyond, like the you know the the elevator conversation, you know?
1: Sure, you know I think like every child, you you grow up thinking that your parents didn't exist until
0: <laughs> till you were born. <laughs> until you were right. born. right?
1: <laughs> and, um, you know, I for a long time thought that, and it was only until I was m- much older that I realized how I had unwittingly lived through some things. <laughs> That were pretty amazing, remarkable, uh, yeah. and and remarkable. Uh, much of them taking place when I was happily living in Bolivia. <laughs>
0: right, you were a little kid living and in Bolivia. I was, a, you know, thinking about little a, kid things
1: and junior high, high school, and you know the things that were important to me was the boy I had a crush on, getting good grades, when I was going to hang out with my friends. Not knowing anything, what was going on. As I got older, um, I ended up being more and more of uh, the translator for my father. Even though my father spoke English. Physically
0: translating. Mm-hmm.
1: Physically translating. And I, I. I think that a lot of immigrant children have that experience. Mm-hmm. You serve as translators, not just of the language, but of the culture.
0: Right. Well, um, we, well we've had a, an author here, um, uh, Ida Rodriguez, who talked about when you're when you're yes, the when you're the translator yes, of I your remember. parents. Sometimes you learn things that are not appropriate for your for a kid your age. You know. And I you
1: remember s- hearing that. Yes, and yeah. it and it's true. So, you know, by then I you know I was in high school. Um, my older brother sometimes translated, but I was mainly the person. And I don't know why my siblings always joked that I was his favorite. I don't think that was necessarily uh, true, but I've always been very verbal hmm. in a good and in a bad way. <laughs> and I think he was, you know, kind of confident in in that. And I think sometimes we're assigned roles. Yeah. And that's what it was. So I learned about my father in a different way.
0: What but was that me- like? Because, like, again, and then you start feeling these little stories. Dad, what do you mean you, you know, uh, you were testified before Congress?
1: Right. And, and you know, and I knew, for, for example, we took a, a trip that I remember very well mm-hmm. uh, for totally different reasons to Chile. And you know, I was there. My younger brother and sister had not been born. It was my older brother and my middle sister, my late sister. And you know, we had a great time, and it was quite the adventure in South America. You know, you can't even think of the roads like we think of the highways here. Right. So you know, you'd get to like a river and the driver would have to find the shallowest part and then you'd get off and carry your things and cross the the bridge. (laughs) I mean, it was just, you know, these wonderful adventures. Well, we were heading to Chile because Castro was heading there. And my father was spearheading an assassination attempt that then just fizzled out. Over, uh, in 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 Chile,
0: and this was you know when your your dad was the co-founder of Alpha Sixty Six, which right. was like an anti. And he was r- working
1: r- mainly for as a CIA operative.
0: As a CIA operative, and when did you find out about this? in your And life? this,
1: you know, I was much older. I was probably 16, 17.
0: How did that hit you? Was it a, was it like a bam? And or was and it, a-
1: it was like putting two and two together, where you have this out of body experience because your father is one person for you and he will always remain that. Right. And then there's this other person who is, I mean the freedom of Cuba was his guiding light for as long as I had any memory. That's what he cared about. I think in many ways he, sac- he sacrificed his life Um, with his family because of that, but that was his guiding light. So you see that person in that fashion and it's like, I don't know this person. Who, who is it? And, um, you begin to ask, would you do that, um, yourself? Would this be such an overpowering passion? That you devote your entire entire life to,
0: and then it's not one of those things that you just ask a question and move on. But later, your dad your dad moved in with you when he was elderly. Of all the right, of right. all the children he moved in with, he moved in with you guys. My
1: my mom died, and for about a month, he lived alone. And the sisters, my middle sister was alive then, so the three sisters. I have a younger sister. Um, decided, we never consulted our brothers, (laughs) that he could not continue like this. Because my mother had done everything for him, had devoted her life to just making his life, you know, kind of pleasant, and he didn't have to worry about the household. So he decided, even though we would very often argue and he thought I was stubborn. Um, he <laughs> decided uh, that he would move in with with me.
0: You and your and your current husband. Uh, and my current David, husband. Who's listening to El it? Americano, El Americano. Who is
1: listening to it now? <laughs> and at that time, of course, my you know five children were at home. Uh, and later, after my middle sister and her husband were killed in a car accident. Their youngest, who was 13 at the time, moved in with us. Oh my so it was, um, it was, it was, it would have been an interesting reality TV show.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think I got to hand it to you. I mean, because you, these are such things, such a difficult things, you know, that you, you learn throughout your life. And at the same time, at some point, you're a single mom with these five kids. And you are now trying to provide for them. I mean, before you met David, What was your life like in that period where you're just like your your other family must
1: i imagine played a big role too yeah so i mean i was very fortunate i had uh, my extended family all lived you know near me so my parents um were over all the time Mm. and i mean (laughs) all the time i
0: hear that is a for better for worse right
1: (laughs) so um so that was just you know i never had to worry about babysitting i did a lot of freelance that was uh, at a time that i decided i wanted to write a my first novel
0: what was your name of your first
1: novel um the chin kiss king which will always be you know kind of very close to my heart because that was um, a very personal story. It was inspired by a nephew who was handicapped. So, I, you know, I was writing this. I had free babysitting at all times, whether I wanted it or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's no wonder that writing about family in all these different ways, like you said, your nephew inspired your first book. You know, you your column has always been devoted to family in your own life. It's no wonder that family became central to your writing life. They were always around.
1: And I always think that family is really the DNA of society. If you have a good family life, (laughs) you can pretty much do anything. You're encouraged to do anything, even when your family itself is skeptical of what you're going to be able to, um, to do. If you have a hard family life, that's just... A higher hurdle to over to overcome,
0: right? I mean, I, you did not have it easy. I mean, you have not had it easy. Uh, and I'm, I'm imagining I'm curious what what role writing played for you in not just not just having a, a career, but also in keeping your sanity, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, I always say that if I can survive the first hour of sitting down to write, which I say, oh my gosh, I wish I were doing something else. You know, this stinks. I'm not going to do anything. If I survive that hour, then I'm totally lost in it. And over the the years, you know, I come from a large family. So if you wanted anything done, if you wanted a focus, you know, I lived with my grandparents. Uh, You know, it was a large house. I tell my children who, I said, you grew up in a lifestyle of of abundance. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up where there were 9 people using one bathroom and we didn't think any of it, <laughs> right? We didn't right. think there was I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. You know, I roomed with my older brother and my middle sister.
0: But to write then effectively and honestly about that, you almost have to pop at you have to see your life from a distance, from right? From a
1: distance and and, and once then, you
0: do that, it changes your perspective.
1: But as you become an adult and you're introduced to other people and other lifestyles and other family combinations, you realize how unique yours is, but also how much the same we try to be part of a a community. So for me, I mean, writing in many ways has always been an escape. Right. um, you know I I write in a, in a lot of ways to make sense of what's happened with me for me to to me and at the end of the day it's it's a job sometimes I think oh I could have picked something that I was you know maybe better at you know since I said I wasn't really particularly good at English, but I always like to write right. and I like to tell stories. So in a way, maybe I'm in the right place where I should have always been.
0: Right. You you had this um, column that I thought was really powerful. And it's it was at a time in your life where you had lost your father. And it's a thing that we all live through if we live long enough. And But at the same time, you've lost your daughter, who you saw deteriorate with alcoholism. And... I'm guess I guess talk to me about how you were able to use writing to kind of work through those emotions when you're seeing this dichotomy of, of life, you know?
1: Yeah. And when my father and my daughter died in the summer of 2020 and we all know
0: the whole pandemic, the, the heart of the whole pandemic. It just adds an extra pandemic. Yeah. So
1: it added all a whole layer of frustration and um, isolation, uh, as well. Um, at that time, uh, my my sons who who lived um, who had moved out of Miami were able to come down and they stayed with us. And I thought, well, if I get COVID, I mean, we were.
0: All locked in together. You know, my
1: nephews and nieces, my siblings, you know, came down and we were doing it. I think what was particularly hard for me, it was hard losing my dad. I was very fortunate that I got to spend his last, you know, the last hours with him so that I was there with hospice. And, um, you know, and that's, it wasn't my first time. Being with a person who's dying, but it offers consolation more, I think, to the person who's left behind. Um, with my daughter, I was able to do that, but it, you know, you never think that you're going to outlive of course. your children, of course, you know. And even though I had known and I had worked very hard, she had been on the list for. A transplant, she kept drinking and she yeah. kept lying, and there was nothing I could do. So that death was layered with the helplessness. And I know you lost your father in a horrible, horrible way when he was, he was murdered by yeah. a neighbor, yeah, yeah, which I remember when yeah. I heard that through the grapevine of journalists. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, because it's the unexpected. You know, my father was just a few weeks short of 92. He had for a long time kept talking, even though my mom had died 18 years earlier, he would talk about that, you know, he had outlived his usefulness. That was, Hmm. he would say, you know, I now bother people. Hmm. Um, So he was ready. And I just can't imagine somebody who is 41 or 42, with her, their whole life ahead of them, with an 11 year old daughter knowingly doing that. And it's that helplessness as helplessness as a parent that that I don't that you just keep living over and over. And you know, maybe I'll get to a point. You know, I have a. In in fact, uh, for her birthday recently, her best friend from uh, middle school had written me a long email. You know, very nice. Uh, and in this email, Becky said, "You know how much she al- she would always remember." My daughter and you know these funny ways, and she told funny stories about it, and that she hoped that I remembered her in the same way. And I, I feel I'm coming closer to that. Um,
0: as you as you tell stories, as, as you, you write stories, us, as you hear stories, you
1: know you hear stories, you know. and but it's still hard. You know it it's still hard, and in a way, writing helps, but writing. Is like putting a Band-Aid because you're escaping. Of course, of course. You're not really facing it head on.
0: Did, I know we only have a little bit of time left together, but did writing your, your book, your most recent book, Dulcinea, and you're creating this young woman character, was there any part of her that you thought of as you went through these years of putting this book together and this new character together?
1: Um, I think so. I think in, I mean, Dulcinea's, you know, Different because she's a product of her time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, I figured that there were a lot of parallels with my own life. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, you know, my children left Miami, they just took better jobs. And I was like, I can't blame them for it, but I said, how could you? All your family's here. <laughs> right. I would have never thought to leave my parents. Yeah. It would have never occurred to me to go elsewhere. Yeah. And like her, she, you know, she kind of followed, even though she rebelled in certain ways, mm. she didn't pursue what was her true love. Right. And so in a way that and I think also She's at an age, which is at the age I am, where you look back and you realize the regrets you had, how you could have made different choices, and then you try to correct them or learn from them.
0: Or at least learn to live with them, yeah. Anna, it has been a real pleasure getting to talk with you about both your book and your life and your writing life. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me, Carlos.
0: Our guest today was Ana Veciana Suarez. She's an author and a syndicated columnist. Her writing covers everything from raising kids and becoming a grandparent to writing through grief. Her latest book is Dulcinea, which tells the story of the woman who inspired Don Quixote. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, July 11th. Leslie Obaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Helen Acevedo produced the show. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of news and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, creativity transforms communities. That's Celia Nelson's guiding principle as the leader of Urgent Inc. It's a nonprofit in Overtown, and it's hosting their annual Youth Film Festival. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.